at Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hey, everyone. Happy uh, National Signing Day. Happy National Signing Day, indeed. It's it's weird that I didn't have to, like, feel like I was going to die for the last 48 hours. Yeah, it's also uh, a day that everyone wins, except for uh, LSU fans today. S- somehow. They usually win, but, but today they were very, very upset. Although if you're a UConn fan, you you almost lost because you almost finished second to Yale in your own state. Oh, that, let me look at where, where do UConn finish uh, or where are they now? Because like technically things are not finished because there are still like you know late additions and and the rankings can change a little bit. But well, there's um, quite a few. I mean, there's more than normal if only because of the new rule where if if your recruit doesn't become academically eligible, you still lose the spot. 111th, and no one. Uh, no one that's that's ranked nationally, and that's tough because there are thousands of players ranked nationally. Um, yeah, pretty good. Good job, UConn. I mean, we, we can't. There's. I didn't expect to lose to them in 2018, but there is now literally no way we can um, and like have any self-respect remaining afterward. No, they're they're bad. They're like a, a not very talented. Bad football team. They were 101st last year. We're talking about UConn recruiting before we're talking about Syracuse recruiting. <laughs> but it, it, I think the the uh, they were 99th in 2016. I'm just going back. Uh, 99th in 2015. Uh, impressive, uh, impressive consistency. And 110th in 2014. Yeah. So like everyone on this roster was part of the 99th or worst best recruiting class in the country. So you're Pretty telling good. me so you're telling me they're all bad. They're they're all bad, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> They're all bad Huskies. Yeah. They were 62nd in 2013. That just fell off a cliff. Moving on. Yeah. At this point, <laughs> we've lost all of our listeners anyway. Um, but yeah, uh, Syracuse had a mostly uneventful uh, National Signing Day. Um, three players signed with SU today. Uh, we had Akeem Dixon, who has been uh, committed since about April or so. Jarvian Howard, another running back who's only been committed for about a week, and he signed today. Um, and then we also had Caleb Okachukwu, uh, somebody we mentioned last week on the podcast, uh, defensive end from the D.C. area. We actually hit D.C. pretty hard this year. Um, he was our third addition. And then we also have a couple other names floating out there um, related to what I mentioned earlier, that um, SU and, and everybody is not necessarily going to take those risks as much. Um, with with potential non qualifiers, if they're going to lose a scholarship spot, so uh, we have a spot waiting for Fitzroy Gardner. Um, we probably have one for Joar Jordan too, um, and then Dwayne Johnson has nothing to do with academics. I don't believe. I think it's just he didn't decide yet. Uh, he's one of the top JUCO cornerbacks in this class. Uh, it would be really great to get him, or really anyone that wants to play on the defensive line. Either of those would be great. Yeah, it was nice to get a. Uh... I'm working on pronunciations here. Okachukwu, right? All right, that's not that bad. It's just Oka plus Odai we already have on our basketball team. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, Denny Okachuku was big. That's probably, you know, I know we, we all wanted uh, Salah Hadin, uh, the four-star running back, with the pick. Juked us out uh, during the signing. He kind of juked us out. Not as bad as the kid who took a Tennessee hat today and threw it, like, I think 75 yards and then picked <laughs> Georgia. Um, in flipping from Alabama, which was just great. It was, like, just this great triangle of just, like, amazing ridiculousness. He threw the hat so far. Um Salah Hadeen kind of did like the little like you know what 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 uh Dewan Coleman did to Kentucky like you know little little gamesmanship. Some people were probably I'm sure there's like one message board thread that's furious about it. And that's fine. I don't care. Um, <laughs> I don't really care. Kids have fun. It's it's not a big deal. He even came in with um, a USC sweatshirt on, so he did like he did the double fake out. Yeah, he, he had came in with a USC sweatshirt on, which was probably the first indication that he was not going to pick USC. Yeah, you know it's it, why why would it, why would that be the game if he was going to do the hat dance? And then he had the pit in the Syracuse hat, uh, no USC hat, and then he faked the Syracuse hat, took off the USC sweatshirt, revered a, <laughs> revealed a pit shirt, and then put on the pit hat. I was like, okay, fair enough. I guess you really thought hard about this, but uh, but good for him. Um, I wish he was going somewhere where we wouldn't have to face him every week. Exactly. Um, like USC. Just, like USC, that would be great. I don't think we'll face him in a while, for a while now. We, we, got, we did that whole thing. Um, I will say that overall, I think it might actually... If we had to pick one of those two guys, obviously Salah Hadeen is the much more uh, lauded player. But I think locking in a defensive lineman, given where our running back situation is right now, with Akeem Dixon in the fold, with Darvian Howard in the fold, and with the transfer of Abdul Adams from Oklahoma, I, I think that was probably more important because I'm very comfortable with where our running backs are right now. Yeah, I mean, obviously we still have to see those running backs play on the field. We have guys on the roster who we're still not sure about, although I really did think, and I know we talked about this before, I really did think that Mo Neal, like came on pretty strong at the end of the year. It was just because at that point like we didn't really have a ton going on in the passing game. So, um, you know, it, it, was a lot of, it was a lot of them knowing we were going to hand it off to Neal um, by the end. But I, I do think that I know we've kind of floated back and forth here. I could definitely see... You know, if Neil can gain like 10 pounds um, and get a little bit better with the blocking assignments, having him be the primary running back this year with Marquenzie Pierre um, kind of being the power back and then having Strickland kind of split out wide to make up for some of the youth out there. Yeah, I think the blocking is going to be key because that's it became very clear during the year. That that's where Strickland's like true value was, especially when we were passing as much as we were. Um Obviously, no one was super effective on the ground. Neil, like you said, opened it up a little bit down the stretch, had some big runs. Um, but Strickland was was a such a better blocker than the other guys in the roster that um, I think that you know it was hard to keep him off the field because there was such a a difference in in the, the pass blocking game with him out there. But I think all three of those guys will find roles. I don't know that any of these running backs, um, the rookie, the, the freshman. I think Babers talked about it today. He said this was like a break class where the last two classes were, were filling needs, like immediate needs, right. um, where, you know, you're like, oh, these guys don't have to play right away, and that became uh, even more apparent with all the injuries that we've suffered. For, while this class can kind of like, you know, if we have guys that are good enough to play right away, like like uh, Trill Williams will probably be in the rotation at corner, um, that's great, but it's not like a necessity. So we can get on some red shirts in here, we can start to build some depth, which I feel like we haven't had in a decade, yeah. Um, we started to get some at the end of Marone, and then it all fell off a cliff. And it's tough when you have coaching changes. So, well, yeah. coaching changes, and like something I talked about in one of the articles today was just like how, and this isn't to say that all of Schaefer's recruiting was bad, but that Schaefer did a lot of the like you know two to three man class type situations where he takes some really big gambles on academic qualifiers. Yeah, 
there's that one class. Was it 2013 or tw- no? 2014. It was the one 2014, I 2014, yeah. which it's not even all his fault. Like you have to, if you're Syracuse, you're going to take some shots on kids. And he was trying to shoot for like these really, really like what would have been really big classes for us. And you had a lot of guys just not, you, we weren't winning one-on-one recruiting battles for all these guys. And then a lot of them just did not pan out for a, a, a litany of reasons. So yeah, I think we lost like, I think two didn't qualify. I think, yeah, that was the year. I think it was Marquise, was Marquise Blair that year? Or was that 2015? That might've been 2015, but KJ Williams didn't qualify. Corey Cooper didn't qualify for the second straight year. Um, there was, I think, Colton Mascal, I think, never even made it onto the field. AJ Long left. Um, I think the top-rated recruit that's still on camp that was that ended up sticking around Slayton. was Slayton. And Jonathan Thomas is a decent player, and Denzel Ward played a little bit uh, until he transferred. Ishmael ended up being obviously a very good player for us. Allen Edward never made it. He was like a borderline four-star quarterback. You, you had that year, like there were some really good players in this class. That year, Franklin was big. Um, but then you had, like, Nace Howard only was here for a bit. Paris Bennett was big. Like, for every big player, Irv Phillips was big. But, like, for every big player, you, like, another guy was never made an impact at all. Right. So even where, like, you know, getting Irv Phillips out of New Haven, uh, at West Haven, I guess, bad Connecticut here, um, <laughs> is, like, a great find as he ended up being one of the best players on the team. And, you know, Connecticut's not exactly um, this crazy recruiting uh, round. You know, when you're losing probably a third-year class to non-qualifiers, which are something you probably can anticipate, and then guys just leaving, um, the, the Nation Howard thing, which is crazy, um, all this other stuff, like, it, it's very hard. It's, it's hard to build depth when you're, you're bringing in a class of what was supposed to be 25 guys, and if we went down, I think maybe, how many played four years here? Maybe 15? Yeah, um, if even. And, like, I don't know what the national average is, but I do, like, I will give Schaefer credit, and I, again, this is something we've discussed, like, he was very him and his staff were very very good at that initial evaluation and like they got a lot of guys early that ended up getting getting um, better offers because once everyone else was wise I mean if we were wise to it as writers I'm sure staff were wise to it so people like Florida State Tennessee uh, plenty of other bigger programs would wait to see who Schaefer and his guys would offer and go in on early because like that I mean and, and that's the the, the you know ten, the terrible game you have to play if you're program in Syracuse situation a lot of times where if you get in on a guy early you have a chance of being able to keep him and and get some sort of loyalty out of it but the problem is then you kind of spell out your plans early on and 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 if you're really good at you know that initial phase of recruiting which Schaefer's uh, staff was and I think Babers is as well I'm not sure if it's to the same extent but Babers staff seems to be better at closing Um, yeah I think Schaefer, like you said, was very good at early evaluations. I think Marone's staff was too. I mm-hmm. think Schaefer's staff was a bit more aggressive. Um, Schaefer's staff was often the first offer for a guy. Yeah. And I don't think we see that as much. We see a little bit of it with Babers, um, with some more local guys. It seems like they, they do like the, they kind of branch out throughout the cycle um, where we get on like some guys in the Northeast like really quick and then we start to see where else we're comfortable. Um, Schaefer was like the first offer for a lot of people. And that will, you know, sometimes it'll help. I think it's a little overblown. Like, it's nice to be the first offer for a guy and, like, show the guy love first. But, like, when, when like, that May of their junior year rolls around and they're starting to get some buzz and then they get, like, an offer every single day, I think it becomes harder to stand out. Um, right. It can't hurt. But um, but if they're I, nowhere near you geographically, they probably didn't take a visit um, yeah. or anything like that. Like, it, it does become this sort of weird, like, dynamic. Like, again, like with all these Florida kids, like it makes sense to get in about a year out 
you've got enough time to visit them once you've got enough time to have them visit once um obviously like at that point all of their in-state offers are probably in the door um, from everybody except maybe Florida, Florida State. And if those offers are coming in Miami, if those three offers are coming in Florida, you're probably not getting them anyway. Right. You could maybe steal, like, a kid who gets a late Florida State offer. Um, but, you know, they were – there was clearly, like, plan B for them. And they're like, okay, well, I'll go back to Salto Syracuse where they want me a lot. So you can get those kids. But if Florida State's in early and, like, this is a priority recruit for them, like, you're just not – especially now with Willie Taggart there, you're not going to get that kid. So um, – I will say I'm impressed this year, aside from the Tyrone Sampson situation, which is mysterious and no one really knows what's going on because it doesn't appear to be academics. And uh, who knows? Like, I, I know there's rumors out there that we don't, you know, I don't think it's fair to lend credence to them without knowing. It, aside from that situation, which is not like someone came in and poached him, like Michigan didn't come in with an offer and steal him. Um, he's not committed anywhere yet. And who knows where he ends up. I, I kind of expect that he probably won't end up on a FBS roster next year uh, based on how this is gone. He's, like, the only big one that we've lost. Like, uh, the Babers staff did a really, really nice job. I might be forgetting someone, but the Babers staff has done a really nice job of holding on to people this year. Yeah, I mean, we lost... Yeah, I mean, like, if you don't count... If you count the guys who committed, um, he's the main one, and then, like, we just kind of fell out with, uh, with Jaquarius Smith. Right. Um, but I knew but, there was someone I was forgetting. Yeah, but, but that's really it, and like, I think, like, that's a rarity for us to be able I to think say that's... that. Also, you know, part of that, I think, is the early signing period helped. But, like, there have been plenty of decommitments, like, across the nation. And to only have, really, two, um, maybe there was someone who was committed early that I can't remember and, like, was out early. But to only have, like, two pretty notable ones in a full, you know, pretty, not, not like, a huge class, but a 19-person class, counting Joe Jordan, which I don't think we probably should at this point. But, so, 18 guys, that's that's a pretty good mark. Like, you don't usually see that, especially... I mean, we've seen, we were just talking about the Schaefer classes, like, you know, part, part of that was we were in on guys really early, and then, you know, like we said, there were big, big schools come, and we you'd have a lot of decommitments. So I think that's more the norm, but to hold on to all these guys and really not have a lot of drama at all on either of these signing days um, is pretty nice. Well, it, especially it's less, when... It's less good for content, but it's, it's nice in terms of, like, sanity and actually, like, building a program. Well, especially when, to be honest, like, we had most of these guys, like, ready to go in, like, September, October... And then we really didn't lose anybody. We lost like one, two names between, you know, when we beat Clemson and when we proceeded to lose the rest of our games. Um, Like you kind of alluded to there, and something that we wrote about in the site numerous times after the ruling came down, like the early signing day helped out Syracuse and programs like Syracuse so, so much. And I think you saw, I think that's where some of the parity came in around signing day this year. Now, obviously, you know, you still had Alabama had a great class. Ohio State and Georgia still put up historically great classes and everyone should fear Georgia um, in the SEC right now. But like you look at some programs like Cincinnati, programs like TCU, Minnesota, uh, programs and even like Baylor, programs that would usually have some of their top guys poached, um, Early signing period really, really helped them. Washington, too. I mean, uh, Washington's turning into a really scary program out there. Um, they finished about the 13th to 15th. Um, yeah, I think they were 13 last yeah. I checked. Like, like that, that's, a, a movement, but... that, that's a huge, huge step up for them. And I know, like, I wrote about this um, elsewhere on the comeback um, around college football playoff time, how, like, they were, like, that typical, like, quote-unquote interloper, the, the team that wasn't recruiting at a championship level. Um, but still competing for conference titles. Like, 
Chris Peterson, if he does this for another year or two, that that's no longer going to be the case. Um, and Washington is going to be miraculously recruiting at like a top 15, 20 level, which is insane. Yeah, they're, they're really impressive because I'm looking at the ra- the 24-7 composite rankings. and Two blue chip quarterbacks. The, yeah, well, A, they got the, the 10th and 11th ranked quarterbacks, which is like, I don't, I don't even know. Like, that just doesn't happen. Like, you might, t- you might take, like, I know what Alabama does a lot. They'll take, like, one five-star guy or four-star guy, and then they'll take another guy who's more of a flyer for depth, and, you know, maybe that guy turns into something. Um, they got, the, like, two guys that were both, like, right in the same um, same area. Colson Yankoff from uh, Idaho and then Jacob Sermon from their backyard in Washington, who are literally, like, the 10th and 11th ranked guys uh, at that position. I think they're, like, 91 and 94 overall. Um, so that's crazy. And they both enrolled early. So, you know, good luck. One of those guys, odds are one of those guys. Be good. He's playing like, for Oregon State soon. <laughs> and then another guy. No, another guy will be playing for Boise. That's in a true. Years. Actually, no, they probably won't release him to Boise um, unless the rules change. Um, he'll be playing somewhere. But out of the top 15, like the only two programs, one of which everyone will guess right away is Notre Dame. The only two programs that are not in traditional recruiting, I guess Oklahoma, not really, but they, they get Texas so much, I think they probably count. Yeah. Um, uh, Notre Dame and Washington are the only two programs in the top 15 here that are not in traditional recruiting, uh, like, areas. Um, everywhere where else is, like, you know, the southeast, pretty much everywhere, uh, except for, like, Tennessee. Uh, and even Tennessee is able to go into, like, other states, obviously, surrounding them, are pretty fertile. Um, Oklahoma, obviously, is Texas, where they recruit more than they do anywhere else. And I'm looking at Washington's breakdown, and it's, like, an interesting mix. Like, they actually got – I think they had a, a strangely strong in-state classes here for that state. Yeah. Um, they have five kids from there. They have two from Oregon, which also had a, a strong year. Like, the Pacific Northwest was just strong this year for whatever reason. And they got five kids from Cal, California, but then they went to Arizona. They went to Utah. And there was just a nice – they had one kid out from Tennessee, um, one from Texas, uh, one from Nevada. But it was, like, a nice spread of, like, the general – Western United States, um, Notre Dame obviously is like a, its own monster in terms of how they build classes because they, you know, just recruit completely nationally. But then after, even after that, like, the only other one's Oregon, which was basically just held on for dear life after Taggart left. Um, they were going to be like a top 5 to 10 class, and then he left and they finished in 16th. Um, Still a good job for them. Ones. That's better than that's better than probably just about every class under Helfrich and maybe even Kelly too, though. Yeah, Tagger was doing work there, um, and he is going to be terrifying at Florida State. Like, Fisher was recruiting really well. Fisher was getting top five classes. I don't expect a step down under Tagger. I mean, he finished with 11, at 11th this year, or he's at 11th right now, um, in, you know, just a couple weeks of, uh, like, what, basically a month and a half of recruiting. Um, Can you remember when they were, like, 75th? Yeah, hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so Oregon is it's kind of its own thing, too, because of the Nike the Nike stuff. They have, like, a unique situation. Um, and then even in the top 25, the only other school that's not in, like, a really solid recruiting area is Nebraska, who is also um, kind of has a unique situation. Obviously, Scott Frost out there uh, late and also was doing double duty with UCF for a while. So he, he really was kind of behind the eight ball, and they finished 22nd, or they're 22nd now. Um, held on to some of the big guys that they had, um, really closed well, and... Like they're they're another school that that has to go to California. They have to get into Texas probably more than they used to. They they did really well in Florida, um, which obviously Frost built a lot of um, pipeline. Basically, like Nebraska was always going to get a couple kids in Florida. Now they have like a really solid pipeline because Frost is apparently like the nicest guy who every high school coach loves. Um, so expect that is going to be uh, tough, especially if we're recruiting against them. Um, so yeah, four schools out of the top twenty-five really are in non-traditional recruiting. 
uh, bases and finished uh, that high. So that kind of tells you what, like, how impressive it is that Washington built the class that they did. And uh, I'm also terrified of Scott Frost. He's going to be really, really good there, I think. Yeah, he's going to be really good there. Hopefully we don't schedule them. It's going to be a bitch to recruit against him down there. Um, redirecting a little bit more towards Syracuse. Um, SU is dropped now from 48th early in the day to 50th now. Um, we could fall out of the top 50. We also still have those three other spots, so we could bounce right back into that kind of 46 to 50 range. Um, Dan, the one thing I wanted to call everyone's attention to, and I don't know if you saw it in my article kind of about um, you know where this recruiting class stacks up to previous ones. Right now, 49th or 50th, but 18 players. And I think you know that's the thing that needs to be underlined here. Um, recruiting classes can sometimes be built, as we've seen in the past, on um, just a boatload of bodies. Like the numbers are just going to give you that advantage over time. But for us, like here, having a having a sub 20 player class right now and being ranked among the top 50 or so, like. That's a hell of an accomplishment, and again, that's without guys like Tyrone Sampson. That's without you know several of the names that that we were that we thought we could get in on. It's without several of the names that could still end up in the program, I, I think that to me and and, and I, I looked at the numbers all the way back to 2013, Schaefer's first class, where he was trying to salvage you know what ended up being like a tire fire um, after Marone left and took most of the staff with him. Um, as long as we finish above 52nd, this will be the best class we've had. But I think because of the, the, the different approach to qualifying, um, this will still be the best, even if we do finish 52nd or so. Um, again, just because all these guys are going to pretty much end up on campus versus you know that 2014 class, the one that Dan and I were talking about earlier. A um, whole bunch of those guys didn't even make it uh, you know, to, the, to the campus, never mind on the field, where even more of them just never worked out. Yeah, and I'm looking because it is a smaller class, and and with you know without without Jawar Jordan, assuming he doesn't make it, it's actually going to probably drop a little bit once they take him off of our uh, ledger here. But overall, the, the in terms of the average like rating, there are still six teams that are ranked ahead of us that have worse average. They're like on a per player average, they're worse than us. Which you know, Purdue, Indiana, Cincinnati, um, Wazoo, um, Mizzou, and Iowa who are all in the top, in the 49 to 50, uh, 40 to 49 range, um, who we have a better, like, per-player rating then. So the, the size of the class definitely, it's like a combination of, like, how good the players are and how big the class is. Um, so overall, I think, I think like you said, this is the best class that we've gotten in a long, long time um, by almost any metric. Obviously, they might fall below one of the other classes, but that class probably had... Uh, 22 or 23 guys, which helps bolster it, even if it's just a couple like low three-star guys. Oh yeah, I mean the average is great. And then again, you look at like you look at each of these players without like going through the list. Pretty much all these guys have like you know multiple peer program like offers. This isn't like you know the, the Schaefer years where we'd have a couple guys who had like you know Ohio State offers, and then everybody else were competing against Akron and UMass. Um, I think there's only like two guys that I remember off the top of my head. Um, that like didn't really have the uh, the like lengthy collection of Power Five offers. You know, Okachukwu obviously would beat out Texas and Arkansas. Um, you know, guys like Cadier White was most of the Northeast um, and and a lot of the Midwest. Trill Williams, same deal. Like, I think Akeem Williams was just JUCO came on a little late. Um, just didn't get the depth of offers, but he still got interest from plenty of the Pacific Northwest Power 5 schools. Like, again, everybody, save one or two on this list, um, has 
power five offers from schools that are in our general ballpark or better, um, which I think is the first time we can say that since I started covering this team. Yeah, and a lot of the guys that are like at the bottom here, like uh, the uh, Cooper Lutz and the Willem Froomey were, I think, among like the earlier guys to yeah. commit. So um, a lot of the times... Uh, they won't talk to other coaches because they, they both, I mean, those two examples, they both seem pretty locked in from the start. But a lot of times they either won't get approached by like a comparable team um, or they won't give the coach the time of day to get the offer. They won't go camp there to get the offer. So um, it could be a case where, you know, maybe they would have gotten a couple more, but they just didn't really play the game because they were comfortable with their decision. So. Even I mean, like, a new, yeah, Froomey's a New Hampshire kid, I believe. Yeah, he's then... from New Hampshire. So that's like. Not and a no one's going up football. there. Yeah, um, and he has you know the, the normal like northeast um, like smaller schools and then some FCS offers. Um, I think BC had interest, but uh, Maryland had interest. Uh, but yeah, like those kids aren't into a lot of exposure unless they really want to. And obviously, he you know jumped on with Syracuse pretty early, so it wasn't like a huge a huge thing. Right. Same thing with Gabe Haran too, who's like a hyper local kid. Right. Like he's another yeah he's another one who uh, we were on him pretty quick. I think he was the second or third guy to sign with uh, to uh, commit to us um, in this cycle, and he never really entertained any other offers. Yeah, so you have to like kind of play the game a little bit to get um, to like really drive the star ranking up, and and to you know if you want to go find other offers, like you can. But you know when these kids commit early and they aren't interested in really entertaining other things, and the schools aren't going to like go out of their way to find the kids in New Hampshire, then. Um, you know, you're just not going to get like these these giant offer lists. So you know, sometimes it means a lot, sometimes it doesn't. Um, I'm pretty thrilled with. Uh, I mean, I don't think there's anyone here that like just feels like a, you know, a guy that that that's going to be a throwaway or a guy that just won't contribute. Like I think everyone here has has the potential to contribute, which I don't think we could say every single year. Um, obviously, you know, you always look for the the best in all the commits that you get, but um, I think everyone here seems like a pretty legit. Uh, FBS uh, ACC level player and uh, you know at worst hopefully everyone here will be you know a solid rotational player going forward so I'm pretty thrilled with this class overall Um, obviously it would have been nice to have our four star center but things happen Uh, but overall like uh, I think this is a a pretty exciting group yeah and I know somebody was kind of joking in the comments like you know it's that uh, it was weird not seeing any two stars, and, and and that's really, I mean, that's something that's changed immediately under Babers. But um, I, I think this is again just to like hammer this point home. It's the first class that that I can remember where like you didn't really see a two star rating from any from any service for these guys. Either they were unrated just because of whatever reason, um, but they were three stars everywhere else or they were three stars across the board, or they were a four with a three that maybe drove them down in the composite rank. Just in general, a, a really a really high-quality class. And, and again, the, the, this, is what, this is what power conference recruiting should look like. Um, and and it's, it's amazing it's taken us this long to get to this point. Yeah, I think Kadir White and Edward Hendricks both have four stars somewhere. Yeah. I think like, and they're three-star yeah, composite and guys. Trill's a four-star deposit yeah. guy, um, so he's he's like the the lead guy in this class. Mm-hmm. I think partially because his name is amazing, but also <laughs> because he you know just has been like kind of a stud the whole time. But um, I like that I like that uh, his last offer was Lane Kiffin on December fifth. Like, did Lane think he was going to come in here and and swoop him? Yeah, like, he no 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 owl puns intended. Lane train. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean he's he's been like the number one guy, but like. 
depending on what your favorite recruiting site of choice is, I, I think we both just kind of default to the 24-7 composite, um, if only because it combines everything, and also I think their site's just laid out the best. But White and Hendricks, I believe, both have four stars elsewhere. So, uh, yeah, this is like, and I, I couldn't tell you the last time we even had, like, you piece together all the different sites and take, like, the most generous rankings. I don't think we've ever, we've had a, a three, four stars in one class uh, group in a long time. So, very good. Good job, Dino. I'll take it. All right. Um, maybe before we jump into basketball, why don't we talk a little beer, Dan? Sounds good. After you, what are you even drinking? I went to a Ballast Point uh, event in here in New York uh, last week, I think last Thursday, where they were just doing a, a tasting at you know some bar in the West Village. Um, I thought they would have a little bit more like newer stuff. It was really more basic, but it was still free Ballast Point, so no real complaints here. Um, so they have their Stolpen and their Grapefruit Stolpen. They also had the Fathom IPA, which is a relatively new release that I had not had yet. Um, yeah, it's pretty which good. Which is actually really good. Um, it's like a very different uh, IPA than like their normal, the, you know, obviously than their Stolpens, which are, um, you know, more of these normal like West Coasts, and then they have their their flavors. The Fathom was uh, a little bit different style. Um, I really liked it, though, um, so I, I enjoyed that. Uh, for the Super Bowl... Um, I was drinking uh, the Flesh and Blood IPA from Dogfish, uh, which is a uh, pretty juicy IPA with, uh, it uses lemon zest and blood orange um, for this really nice citrusy flavor, but um, not like beyond what like your normal uh, citrusy IPA is. Uh, I thought it worked really well, and I'm always, sometimes blood orange I feel, feel like can be a little bit much, and this worked really well. So I was very happy with that, and I ended up having... Uh, more more of those than I intended uh, during the Super Bowl. Um, and then I also had a Jinx by Magic Hat, which I believe is their Scottish uh, barrel-aged. Uh, uh, yeah, it was their Scotch Ale, uh, which was also very good. Um, I think that was a limited release, so my... my oh, I was actually producer Lewis uh, picked up a six-pack of those, so I got to try one of those. Um, so those are the most exciting things. Um, definitely recommend all of those obviously if you've listened to this at all Ballast Point comes up every so often so that's an obvious one but the other two were also very good nice uh, yeah I had a busy weekend of drinking drank a little too much during the Super Bowl um, to say the least uh, that was not because I was invested in either team I actually hate both teams um, but it was great to see uh, New England lose um, in any fashion um, I had from McKellar had a Windy Hill uh, New England style IPA that one was alright um, had a bottle of from Brew Tarot, uh Sour in the Rye Pog. It's their uh, Sour in the Rye with uh, passion fruit, orange, and guava. It was uh, really, really good. Nice tropical sour from them. Had from Monkish. Had their Tom, Dick, and Henry uh, triple IPA. Um, had a West Coast style IPA from Hop Saint Name Dropper. I've mentioned that one a couple times. Um, my buddy was over at his house at the Super Bowl. Um, this is why I like, drank way too much during the Super Bowl. Had like a lot of like aggressive kind of barrel aged stuff um, that we were kind of imbibing. Uh, so had a Speedway Stout barrel age from 2015. Um, so put some age on that. That adds a little bit more on the uh, the booze front. Uh, had a black and blue and red all over. Um, it was kind of a, a dark uh, blueberry, blackberry, and raspberry sour. Uh, from Brewery to Row that was super good. Um, had some Sneakers is Kicks, uh, double IPA from Monkish, um, and then a 2014 bottle of Melange number no. 3. Uh, it's a strong ale from uh, the brewery. And, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's where things kind of hit the tipping point. 
would would not recommend barrel aged beers during the Super Bowl, Dan. Or or Eagles Patriots Super Bowls. Or yeah, or definitely not those. Um, I could do without those forever. I've already had experience two of them, and I don't. <laughs> I don't really want another one. Was there a team you were actually pulling for? Like I know it was begrudgingly so, but were you were you begrudgingly pulling for one of those two sides? See, like here here's my problem. Like for me, I wanted to keep the trump card on Tom Brady, like just to the Giants. Mm, and that. And pointing and laughing at Philly fans every time they like had something to say that they've never won anything was was always a good time. Um, I wouldn't have see I wouldn't have minded if they flip flopped. Like if the Eagles had won the last time these two teams faced one another, at least Donovan McNabb would have gotten a title. Yeah. This time it I, then became like this. Like I mean, it was fine. I really love the fact that they used the college game plan to win the Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean, I love like uh, I'm not. I don't really have anything against. Uh, the Patriots, the problem with the Patriots is just, like, the fans are so uh, damn annoying at this point. Started. And they're so weirdly thin-skinned for a team that's won Hilarious. so much. There's something yeah. very Trumpy about them. And I'll leave uh, it at that. <laughs> they're just, like, you would th- any slight is, like, uh, Everyone's this out to giant get thing, and it's just so annoying. Just enjoy the fact that you have five rings and, Walk away. like, appreciate, yeah, and be like, you have that over everybody. So just, like, use it. Like, just say, hey, we have five rings, so we're good. Uh, we don't need to be as defensive as humanly possible about every possible slight against Tom Brady or Bill Belichick. They're both, like, it's just ridiculous. Uh, you have the best coach and quarterback ever at the same time and five Super Bowls. Um, the Eagles, I feel like I had more hatred towards the Eagles in my life when... Uh, after the Freddie Mitchell game against uh, the Packers. I recall. Which, the 4th uh, and 26. 4th and 26. And then I ran into Freddie Mitchell at the Walter Camp dinner in New Haven <laughs> a couple of years ago. And my dad was like, hey, this, uh, you know, he used to play for the Eagles. I was like, oh, who is it? And he goes, Freddie Mitchell? And I was like, oh, my God. There's literally not one former <laughs> Eagle I would least rather meet right now than Freddie goddamn Mitchell. And I met him. Um, and I don't know. I otherwise like I have friends who are Eagles fans. They're not the Phillies, so I don't have any personal animus towards them. Otherwise, like I guess the the four twenty six game was what like fourteen years ago now, so I could probably be over it. Um, nah, those things don't die. I still hate the Niners for what they did to us in two thousand one or whatever. It, it helps that the Packers have won a Super Bowl since, right? Um, yeah. So like I have more more annoyance towards the Seahawks now, and uh, and obviously like the Vikings and. Mostly the Vikings. The Bears are just sad, and the Lions are just even more sad. Um, but, yeah, so, so I don't know. I was happy the Eagles beat the Vikings, and I think the Eagles, like, aside from the franchise they play for, were really fun as a group. Right. Um, and the Nick, like, the way they utilized, like, it was a very modern NFL team, and the fact that they got the performances they did out of Nick Foles was super admirable, and the fact that they just seemed to have, like, a lot of fun uh, doing it and were in so many ways, like, the anti-Patriots. Um, so I definitely found myself rooting for the Eagles pretty strongly. Uh, I wouldn't have been like, you know, devastated if they had lost because I, I don't hate the Patriots as much as a lot of other people, but I was, I was pretty happy with the result. And also all of the, uh, videos from Philadelphia, um, afterwards made it worth it. I think, um, aside from the horse one, I didn't need to see yeah. that. See, for me, like I had, I had the conflict of like, as a four sport, New York fan, like I have so much built up hatred for all four Philly teams. In particular, the Phillies for what they did to me 
in, yeah. in the mid 2000s that like I can never get that back. Um, that would definitely be a more like a kind of a game changer. I just have the one, so I mean the the Sixers and Nets don't really have I don't, anything. I don't really mind the Sixers because the current Sixers are a hell of a lot of fun. But like for me, yeah, right. But then on the other hand, like some of my best friends are like just fervent assholes, which just puts me in this like weird spot where like I, I'm gonna lose either way. I also feel like there's more like obviously I feel like Philly's one of those cities where everyone roots to the same teams and Boston's very much the same. But I feel like. The Philadelphia teams, even though they like seem to support each other, don't have this like shared identity that the Boston teams do. Right, and like Pittsburgh I don't does, know. and yeah, I don't get, I don't know totally why. Like there are a couple of cities like that, but the Boston teams, I think it's just because so, they all won so much in this like short period of time. They're kind of like this one big group of, of sports, and the Philly teams have all been so different. Um, and and it, it you know it's cool to see Embiid at like the the Super Bowl and. And uh, seeing, like, guys from all the other teams, like, supporting each other, like, the whole week. But, um, like, the Eagles had their heyday in, like, the early, the McNabb years. And then the, the Phillies won, won the World Series, like, after the Eagles had already flamed out. And the Sixers had, like, the AI thing before that. So, like, they've never really been good at the same time. Um, and now they're kind of maybe getting there. We'll see, because the NFL stuff is so fleeting. And who knows if the Sixers actually, like, get to where they're supposed to be going. And the Phillies didn't know, didn't know screw off. But um I feel like it's like, like collective think... underdogism. Like yes. Philly and Boston in particular, like have I mean I, I always joke and, and at this point I don't you know, people are gonna get pissed off at me, I don't really care. because um, I always I always joke that like San Francisco, Philly and Boston all suffer from like the same disease as instead of defining themselves by what they are, they sit around defining themselves by like the city they're comparing themselves to all the time. So like Philly and Boston do a lot of comparing themselves in New York. Um San Francisco does a lot of comparing itself to New York and Los Angeles, like, and that's not to play, you know, New York, LA elitist, but just more to say, like, those cities do a, ve- do a lot of, like, chip on their shoulders stuff, and that can be endearing at times, but um, I think that's when you see more of that collectivism, like, San Francisco does it with their teams, too. Uh, they didn't count the Warriors as theirs until they started winning, and then suddenly San Francisco loved the Warriors, um, but, yeah, uh, that, that, I think that's where some of it comes from. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so yeah, it wasn't my ideal Super Bowl matchup, but I was I was pretty happy with the outcome. I also have like some pretty good Philly fan, uh, Eagle fan friends who I was happy for um, because you know when a team hasn't won ever, like there's something there um, when you're not a Giants or Cowboys or, or a Washington fan. So yeah, that was my Super Bowl experience um, overall. Not that bad. I, I just also appreciate that we've had like. Since the, the awful, awful Seahawks-Broncos Super Bowl, we've had some really, really good games, which is nice. I mean, really, since, like, I'd say since, like, 2000, we've had some... Uh, 2001, sorry. My team screwed that up. Um, since 2001, <laughs> we've had some really great Super Bowls, and, like, maybe it has to do with Tom Brady, but in general, like, the Super Bowl kind of sucked for, like, the majority of, like, the first 30 years. Um, and then in the, like, 22 seasons since... Like, it's been better by a significant margin, especially, again, in, like, the last, like, 17, 18 seasons. Like, the large majority of those games have been pretty close and pretty good. Yeah, I mean, like, the only duds, like, Broncos-Panthers really wasn't actually that good. I forgot. Like, that was that was not as close as I thought. Um, Raiders-Bucks And also, sucked. like, um, Seahawks-Broncos was terrible. And then, like, going back, like... Saints Colts was like not that close, but it was pretty fun. Yeah, well, it's just with the fan bases and like New Orleans being there was just fun, but like Raiders Bucks was bad. Seahawks, yeah, but that's like you're going back like over a decade now. Well, yeah, to get there. Seahawks Steelers was unwatchable. 
Yeah, it was a bad game. It was like closer than the store, but like it was a bad game. Colts Bears is bad. Um, Col- Prince was, was awesome. Was boring. Colts Bears is bad. Um, uh, yeah, obviously Bucks Bucks Raiders was just like a bludgeoning, as was Ravens Giants. Sorry, John. Um, we went to Super Bowls after that, so it's not a big deal. Yeah, you're, you're doing all right. Um, I don't really remember. Uh, I remember watching Broncos Falcons, but I don't really remember the details. And that that game, like I was. I just hated because at, at the time, like when the Giants were bad when I was a kid, like I mean the Giants got good very quickly thereafter. But like I just really was a big Brett Favre fan, so I was like fervently rooting for Brett Favre like against the Broncos the year before, and then after the Packers lost, I just like hated the Broncos. And my brother was like a big John Elway fan, so then the next year I was like uh, our high school mascot was the Falcons, and like our town mascot was the Falcons. So I was like big in on the Falcons. Uh, the following year, and uh, you know they obviously messed that up. But my my only like long memory of that Falcons era is that when you played Madden for a couple of years there, anytime you used Jamal Anderson, the only thing they had programmed to say about him is that he only fell forward. That's so cool. like that just programmed in my brain that Jamal Anderson only fell forward, like he never he never got uh, taken down and like went backwards. I remember so much about that team, the Dirty Bird. Freaking wasn't it like Curtis Conway on that team. Uh, Think so. LeBron James just won a game on basically the Leitner the Leitner play <laughs> against in like double overtime against the T Wolves. Um, wow. Why did it have to be the T Wolves? Yeah, they won. I think it was. I think it was double overtime. It was one forty to one thirty eight, right. and they just threw from um, not quite mid court on the sideline. Yeah, like three quarters court through to LeBron, and he had a fadeaway jumper. Um, on Andrew Wiggins uh, from just beyond the foul line, and it was pretty remarkable. That's that's highly unfortunate. I mean, I I I want LeBron to to like do well. I feel for the most part, um, but not against Minnesota. I I love watching the Wolves. I like the Wolves too. I don't know what I want for LeBron here. I don't know what what like I don't really want him to like. I don't have terrible season in Cleveland. I don't think there's any future for him there. I just don't know where I want him to go. That he could realistically go, I don't really want him to know the Lakers because I feel like he's just hard pass. Like, yeah, a it's the Lakers and ooh, and b like they're not going to be good enough for a while. And by the time they're good enough, he's not going to be good enough. I don't think. I, I, get, Rockets, I could see him go to New Orleans. I mean, I, he won't go to New Orleans, but I'd love to see him go there, just like uh, for fun. Yeah, I mean that would never happen. They're just not. He'd go to Minnesota. Go. That'd be fun. Do that. I just don't see him going to like one, a market like that. No, he won't. I, I think, I, obviously, the Rockets is like the big one, yeah. um, which would be interesting. I don't know how he would fit into that system. Obviously, I think he could. I just don't know how. I feel like, I feel like, like you know, we'd have the normal like February thing where like he gets annoyed at something, and the Rockets are like, oh, it was better when it was just Paul and Harden. Um, I think if he wanted to, he could fit into that system. I think the Spurs would be really interesting. Him and Pop. I could yeah, buy, I could buy the Spurs. I think. Yeah, like the problem is, I'd love for him to go to the Knicks, but he's not doing that. And now that everything sucks for the Knicks, uh, who knows where that goes? But yeah, I uh, I could see him going to the Rockets, but I also don't see him giving up money. And if the problem now is that if he's not going to give up money, like I don't know where he can go that has the room to sign him that's actually going to be competitive, because like not many teams have the room. That's the problem is, like, there's just very few teams that, like, could get him that he might want to go to and could win a title with him. 
assuming you take out the Warriors, because good lord, like I I think, I, I, I think, think what David riot. Stern did to shut down Chris Paul from going to the Lakers is pretty shady. I think they should absolutely shut down LeBron from going to the Warriors if that was I don't think he would, because I don't think he would get any credit for any titles they won. Yeah. Um but like just the inkling of that being a possibility is like so ludicrous. Yeah, I, uh, I really hope that doesn't happen. Just I hate the Warriors so much. Yeah, I don't even hate the Warriors, but like, come on, really? Like, what, what are we doing here if we if we do that? Like, I don't think it's gonna happen. I don't like they would have to they would have to unload so much just for the possibility of getting him, and they would put their own depth in such danger at the chance that he changed his mind that it would be a, a huge risk for that franchise. But um, man, that would just be stupid. Um, please do it. That, no, no, please do it now. <laughs> Because they're going to have to probably trade Clay to make it happen. Yes. Trade Clay to the Knicks. Um, Yeah, I don't know what the Knicks are doing. Uh, Listen, man, I'm in mourning. I was supposed to see Kristaps play against the Clippers in early March. And now I feel like I'm going to end up (laughs) not seeing him at any point during his Knicks career. Like, I didn't see Melo live the entire time, despite the fact that I went to a Knicks game every year. Because for some reason... There was, like, an injury every single time. And I feel like Chris Dapp's going to be the same thing. I'm going to venture a guess that Blake Griffin was still on the team when you bought those tickets as well. Uh, yes, he was. That's hilarious. <laughs> and I'm not even going to talk about how much I spent on the tickets. Me and my buddy, who's also a big Knicks fan, and it's Syracuse grad, actually, out here. Um, we spent significantly more than we'd probably have to spend on those tickets right now. Which is unfortunate. I would imagine. <laughs> Second level at the Staples Center... No matter who you're playing, is probably going to be more expensive than, than than what we're going to see, which is like uh, the Agua Caliente Clippers of Ontario versus the Westchester Knicks. Yes, the Westchester Knicks. I I, I have to imagine that any time the Knicks play there, it's super inflated because I'm sure there's just a lot of East Coast. Well, yes, yeah. I, I have to pay the New York markup for every t- even the Mets get the New York markup out here. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Which is which is fine. I I, I, I accept my fate. I, I go to my one game per year as a visiting fan, and otherwise I, I I get the rest of my live game fix going to see, you know, the Dodgers drub the Padres for seven dollars, or or I luck into, you know, either box seats from friends or whatever, or I get to go to like you know the Suns are in town and nobody wants to see the Suns and Clippers, so then you get to go to that for like fifteen bucks. Oh, hey, Ohio State beat Purdue. We're just breaking news that everyone's going to hear like 12 hours later. Yeah, that's fine. On that note, we'll probably talk a little bit more Syracuse because I'm sure there's right. already like outrage at this point um, about... We should, we should actually put in like time markers for like there's NBA content from like 34 to 49. Um, it was NFL LeBron content. did something crazy. <laughs> it wasn't planned. LeBron did something crazy in front of me. And there was NFL content from like 27 to... Yes. Oh, actually, yeah, that's what we were on. We were in the Super Bowl first, and then NBA happened, like, mid-sentence. Um, yeah, maybe we should do that so people who are, who are, are uh, their ears light on fire every time you're talking about uh, paid athletes. Um, God forbid. Yes. Um, um, but, yeah. Although, the, they, we are going to have some paid college athletes uh, this year, which I, I t- feel like no one talked about, the three-on-three tournament thing. Oh, yeah, I forgot all about that. Who, no one on our team could do it, though, because we have no seniors. Mm. Sad. Unfortunate. Next year, maybe, sort of. But yeah, um, on current things with Syracuse basketball, um, Syracuse not only won, they beat Louisville of all teams, and they beat them on the road. 
Um, I know I didn't pick Syracuse to win this game, but I did mention that I was tempted to, and that counts because of the fact <laughs> <laughs> the fact that they were facing a first year head coach, and I'd always take Jim Beheim against the first year head coach. And lo and behold, that first year head coach came through when we needed him most and started just just ripping Jays from outside. Instead of just just staying in the paint and and getting us into foul trouble slash getting the entire team fouled out, I think we talked about it last week on the podcast too. Like we we weren't like obviously fully previewing Louisville because it was a couple games away, but um, like we discussed like you know Beheim versus Paget Paget approaching against the zone for the first time. It's obviously a lot different when you're doing it for real than like coaching against it slash like seeing Patino do it, who obviously was was very very good against it almost every time we played. Um, the, 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 the last five minutes of Louisville was so fascinating and mystifying. Like, they scored... I'm going to pull up the play-by-play and be obnoxious, and uh, maybe we'll edit it out. Um, I'm going to look to see how many baskets in a row they scored until uh, before they decided to stop doing the thing that worked every single time. It was unbelievable. Um, they went from, like, a 12-point lead to, like, a 2-point lead, like, very quickly. Yeah, did we ever give up the lead? No. No, yeah, we were up, so we were up uh, 65-53, which I think is the high watermark of our lead, yeah. with uh, 7.36 left in the game after two Tyus free throws. And then uh, a tip-in, a dunk, a tip-in, uh, a, a, a Mahmoud jumper, which was, like, I think from, like, not even the foul line, um, a layup, two free throws, uh, then they missed a three, and then... They missed another three, and that's like we're just like they cut it down from that eleven or twelve point lead to a two point lead in the course of three minutes on like five or six straight possessions where they scored, and then they just started jack like just light like going crazy from outside, and they didn't hit any of them. Like right. they weren't even getting great looks, and then eventually they got back to the free throw line, but it was after we had brought our lead back to like seven, so it was just so asinine. Like they were five of twenty one from outside. It was really bad, and and obviously our defense is good. Like we're 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 at the point where we can, I think, pretty safely say, if nothing else, the defense that we have is very good. Um, the advanced statistics bear this out. I know there are stretches during these games where we like look very frustrating on defense, but overall, like per forty minutes, we are a very good defensive team. Louisville just it was like it, like I don't know. We're going back to like old Madden references again. I feel like when I played Madden, like there were some plays. Every, like every year, there was like one play in the playbook that was basically unstoppable. And it was so boring to just use that play over and over, so you'd mix it up and you'd only use it when you had it like bailed out. And it almost felt like Paget was like tired of using that little like tight end Z route that you could get a first down on every single time. So he started like throwing deep and and then it just got away from him. Like then the computer took over and decided it was gonna win the game. Um it was just so ridiculous that they didn't keep on feeding it inside because there was no reason not to. Nothing happened, nothing changed that like necessitated that change in strategy. Well, yeah, and, like, if you look at, like, who took all these shots, like, the guy, like, if you're going to win that game, it, I don't even think it takes a, you know, seasoned coach to realize that, like, if you just kept handing the ball to Ray Spalding and VJ King, you were probably going to win. Yeah, it was Mahmoud, Spalding, and King down the stretch. Adele had a bad game. He was 2 of 9 from the field, 10 points. Um, Snyder did nothing. There were a couple of guys off the bench who had some, I mean, Spalding was the main guy off the bench who had 18, but, like, they were doing all the damage, and... All of a sudden, we're, we're watching uh, Snyder and Adele jack threes, and, you know, as we said, they were 5 for 21 for the team. Syracuse actually 6 for 13. That was, like, a really nice 
three-point performance, and, and obviously that's not the team's strength, but, you know, I think six for 13 is, obviously, if you're shooting 46%, you're happy, but I think that's, like, a the you know, appropriate amount of shots from three this team should be taking, right. and, you know, Brissette keeps on adding that to his arsenal a little bit. Frank hits a huge ones. Um, Battle didn't take too many because he didn't have it, but... He realized it. Had a really nice game. That's the thing. He realized it, and that was the thing missing from, like, the Virginia game and some of the other games that we, like, lost close was that, like, Battle didn't real Battle didn't realize when he didn't have it. And, like, and then on top of that, like, Frank and O'Shea weren't hitting from outside either. So when you don't have any three ball and you don't really have a lot of ball movement ability, like, that's kind of what happens. Like, this game we only had nine assists, but at the same time, like, nine assists on 25 baskets isn't horrendous and everybody got involved like Bayer was the only player who didn't have an assist um I'd say that that's like a nice the nice step forward even if ball movement's still kind of bad it was it was it wasn't it looked better than than the numbers look but I think yeah. part of the the other thing was that Louisville's guards could not stay in front of Howard or uh battle at all especially when they had uh, McMahon in the three-point gunner who hit like one really deep three and that freaked me out and then the rest of the game, he was... Oh, he had the one deep three, and then he also got fouled uh, on a really asinine play uh, by... I forget who it was. I think it was Howard, I but I don't remember. Frank. Was it Frank? Yeah. yeah he, he fouled him on a three, um, and the dude flopped, I thought, pretty clearly, but got, all, got to the line, hit all three, obviously. Um, but otherwise, like, his main contribution was playing Matador to Battle and Howard every time they got on him one-on-one. So, like, while usually I'm kind of annoyed with how we go right to the dribble drive, in this case... Snyder couldn't defend us, and McMahon, when he was in, which was only nine minutes, it seemed like a lot more, but he was in for, like, a good uh, deal of that, like, mid-second half, and, man, he could not defend either of those guys for at all. Like, every time we got a one-on-one against him, we just took it right to the hole, and it was gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, obviously you're not going to be able to replicate that all the time, but I'll take that. I'll take the little bit of ball movement. I'll take the... Uh, really nice job on the boards, even if the de- offensive rebounding has definitely fallen off since ACC play started. And I'll also take Dolezal being a pretty accurate shooter, quietly. Yeah, if he can just add that mid-range and take, like, a... Maybe, I'm, like, afraid to say take a couple more of those, because I feel like that's when he, you know, has a 3-for-10 game. Um, but, like, we've seen a couple couple games now where he's had something, and if he can get us eight points a night, I'm thrilled. Like, that's, that's fine. Um, I would take that for sure. Um, also, getting to the free throw line, twenty nine, uh, taking twenty nine shots from the free throw line, very nice, and hitting uh, a good amount of them, um, very solid. And it wasn't just present this time. Battle was eleven for eleven, which is huge. Oh yeah, I mean, battle being perfect from the line um, is huge. It made him such a threat, um, and obviously, again, the fact that he wasn't settling for outside shots unnecessarily, um, and he still scored twenty five points. Um, I think you know that's the type of game that if people are talking about his pro prospects. Um, you have to see more of that um, in order to really start projecting him into the draft conversation uh, in earnest. Yeah, I mean, being able to, like, handle the ball pretty well and, like, have that kind of dominant um, streak in terms of, of being able to break guys down and take it to the hole and finish well and get to the line, like, that's where he's going to make his money. I don't think he's ever, you know, I think his, his three-point shot will come along, but I don't think he's ever going to be, like, a lights-out shooter. Yeah. No. Um, he needs to be able to knock them down, and he needs to probably improve on that, although a lot of that's just, like, this team is so deficient from there that he takes bad shots out of necessity sometimes, or he feels like he has to. Um, I, I Overall, though, like, his strength is going to be just being a really good athlete and, and getting the ball to the hole. So 
yeah, it was nice to see him play an efficient game because obviously he's kind of trailed off a little bit in the last couple of weeks where earlier in the year when we had some more depth and we were um, playing obviously weaker teams, but like this was the type of game he was having. And to see him have it against a team that, you know, Louisville's not great, but they're still pretty talented. They're, you know, blue chip guys all over this roster and, and it's, you know, the same, largely the same roster that, that Patino would have been coaching. Um, it was a, a pretty nice sign, I thought. Yeah, and honestly, like, as much as Battle's been trailing off, like, you look at the numbers, and, like, they're not necessarily as bad as we think. He also was the only player to not commit a foul um, besides Braden Bear. Um, I, I commend him for that, considering everybody else had at least three. Yeah, Bayham's foul management, and this was, like, a very, very closely called game. Um, it uh, Both sides, really. I mean, Louisville, we actually took more foul shots, but Louisville has ten players, and we have, like, six. Um and Brandon Bear, shout out to him. Um, but the, the the fact that Beheim was able to manage the fouls and, and without anyone fouling out until I think it was like what one thirty six or so when yeah. that fouled out, like that's pretty remarkable. I, that I said I tweeted after the game like it was a breakdown in Paget coaching the offense and then Beheim just very masterfully um, having his guys in position to stay in the game and play well enough on defense. Obviously that that run of interior. Um, of like interior scoring for Louisville was in part because we couldn't play super aggressively on the block. Um, but like overall he, he managed the game super well. And I feel like every year there's like two or three games where you just get reminded that Bayheim's like really good at this. And it's easy to kind of forget that when you have some of the other losses that are annoying. Um, but like every so often he just has a game where he flat out out coaches someone. And it's always a, a nice reminder that we do in fact have a hall of fame coach who was worthy of being uh, in that group. Too, too true. Uh, Dan, before we kind of sign off here, um, I think four and three with a win in the ACC tournament gets us in. Do you agree? I agree. Um, because the four and three is going to be a, a battle to get there. Um, no pun intended. Again, I feel like it's been a couple <laughs> times this podcast. Um, we need to beat Wake. We should not have lost the Wake last time. Um, that week and the Notre Dame loss uh, haunt us, really. Florida State, um, too, really. And Florida, Florida State's, like, at least they're decent. And UVA, right. the first UVA game, we should have stolen. Like, there are a couple of losses. And St. Bonaventure, yeah. So Those really, games all haunt us. We should be, like, you know, top 25 team, but whatever. Yeah, with no offense, like, somehow. <laughs> um, beat Wake, beat BC again. Don't have one of those weird road BC games where you blow them out the other time. Then oh. this game is, like, way too frustrating. We do not need that in our lives. It's not healthy. Um, and then like NC State surging and Miami, I think is still really talented. I think we could get them. Um, UNC, I'm not super impressed with, but like there's, there's no gimme game here. Clemson plays really hard. That's going to be a really tough game. though it is at the dome, um, to end the year. So like, yeah, you're going to have to steal two games from ranked teams because I'm assuming NC State will be ranked, uh, next week probably. Um, or by the time, I mean, pretty soon because they've been on a, a tear, um, and then you have to be Wake and BC. Like, you just have to take those two games. You can't let up. Uh, and then, yeah, if we go 4-3 and three and finally win our first game in the ACC tournament, yeah. if we finish 4-3, and three, we'd be 10-and... Uh, and uh, No, 9-9, nine and nine, right? We'd go 9-9, so nine be... nine, but we'd have... But we'd have wins over Louisville. But as, it, like, as far as, like, Tier 1-ish, Louisville, Buffalo, and then... Problem, and then NC State. Any of those other two wins yeah. will be a tier one win. Like, right. So we'd have like five tier one wins, and like people were, you know, that one article the other day was talking about the comparison between like our resume and Louisville's, and we actually look better by the numbers, and we had the head to head. Yeah. 
I mean, we've seen that, that I think you actually said, like, verbatim, we've seen that this doesn't always yeah. matter because we forced last year, um, who we beat and got passed over for. Um, but yeah, no, I think 9 and 9 in the ACC, and then please, God, dead at an ACC tournament win in Brooklyn, please. Um, that's like one of the weirdest bugaboos, uh, like sure, Monty's yeah. on the back, um, that I can remember with any Syracuse team. I guess, I guess having a monumental football win and then losing out is another one now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a fun tradition that we've started. Um, but this is like, we've been in the ACC for a minute now. Like it's been a while and we should, we should have at least one. And I know we, we weren't eligible for one and that hurt. Um, but come on. <laughs> There, I mean, and some of our teams were good. There, there, there are some reasons. Like uh, the 2014 team was like literally in a free fall and had been for like half a month when they got to the NC State game, and then oh, I was there. I'm yeah, aware. yeah. So you know how it goes with like the double buy and all the other bullshit. Um, and then obviously, you know, us facing Pitt in in anything is is, is fraught with consequences. I would like to face Pitt in the ACC tournament this year. Oh, this I will, year, I'd, I'll put that out there. People were joking that we should really want to finish like ninth. Yeah, well, not no. We want, we want to finish ninth. You want to finish like. Oh, uh, how does it work? You yeah. want to finish like tenth oh. because then if you finish tenth, you then face the worst team. The problem is that Wake Forest would beat Pitt, and we lose to Wake Forest again. <laughs> yeah, but you know, <laughs> if we I guess I would take my I would take my chances. Um, no, because yeah, you're right. If you finish ninth, you play the eighth team automatically, right? right. That's Which what, is that, what happened last year when we faced Miami, who was better than uh, the record. Yeah, so right now we're going to finish in that same range. Because so if we finish nine and nine, assuming we don't go on a tear here and beat like four ranked teams, um, we're going to be probably like if we do the four and three thing that we're saying, we'll be nine and nine, which will be um, right in that like probably eight to eleven range yeah. somewhere based on tiebreakers. I mean, how does? Let me see how it usually shakes out here. Give me a ten. Want to face Pitt? <laughs> Pitt, Pitt finally coming through for us and yeah. winning a postseason game when they're not supposed to, yeah. and then so we could face them would be great. And then I'd be terrified that we we're going to lose to Pitt. Like I know Pitt's hot, hot garbage, um, but I would be terrified that we we're going to lose to them no matter what. Well, the thing is, too, we said this last year, like us getting the nine seed over like Wake or like whoever was behind, below us. I felt like it was absolute BS because then they got an easy game against whoever was last. And then the next round, they got an easier game than we had against Miami. And there's no there's no benefit to being uh, eight or nine. There's no benefit to being eight or nine. Like there's no they don't look at that. I don't. I mean, I assume they don't look at that in the in the uh, tournament uh, room and say, oh, yeah, Syracuse finished ninth, so right. they should go over the team that just won the tournament game. Like, yeah, give me the give me the the data point here to to take advantage of. I'm looking at last year. We were, you know, we were ten and eight last year. It actually was. Uh, there was more weighted towards the uh, the top because there was like a bunch of really bad teams: NC State, Pitt, and BC all had four fewer wins. Um, so yeah, last year nine and nine was Wake Forest, and they, like you said, they finished tenth uh, with a chance. So let's say the ten and eights turned into nine, into nine and nines. That'd be like the seven to seven to eleven range is basically where we're looking at because Georgia Tech last year was eight and ten, and they finished eleventh. Yeah, again, give me the 10 so that we can face Pitt, and then, and, then that, and then there's your win. And then there's your win, there's your neutral site win. Like that game, winning that game counts just as much as beating whoever we'd face in an 8-9 game like Virginia Tech. So to me, like, I'd rather get that and then have a chance of getting another win in the next round with some momentum. Yeah, because like in this, in this, uh, based on the standings right now, 
we would beat Pitt at well, assuming they beat Wake Forest. We would play Pitt, and then who would we get in the following round? We get the two. Uh, I think we would get the two. I don't even know what the ACC bracket looks like. Uh, it's so it's so convoluted. Um, I'm I'm gonna pull up last year's just as I now care about this. No, I think this is this is absolutely worth diving into, just from the standpoint of like. It just, I'm just it's a total hypothetical. All right, the ACC tournament bracket last year, um, the two was Virginia. I know, yeah, that's they, the thing, is that you get to face the seven. Like, if oh, you, is it the seven, and then the two faces the seven? Am yeah. Am I right? Yeah, so then that's the thing. Like, you get to, you, if you're the 10, you were in a much better place than if you are the eight or nine, because you get to face and probably beat the 15. Then you get to potentially beat the seven. The seven right now, Louisville. Oh, boy. We're going on a run, everyone. If, if the standings stay exactly the same as they are today, which is very likely with a full month left of the season. <laughs> We're going on a run, kids. Yeah, but, but you hear me on this, right? Like, like the, the, it's so much better to be the 10 in this stupid, oh, stupid tournament. I think that's, that's like, borne out in terms of, like, just seeing how... Like, I, I, I want to go through, like, who's finished 10th in the ACC the last couple of years and seeing how it's gone for them. Well, the, problem is, we've, we, the problem is we've had so few tournaments that have had all the teams right because we had the 14 because we've had us we were out one year and was louisville out one year already uh yes yeah yes so so far i'm back to 2015 now and nope the 10 seed did not win a game in 2015 but we weren't in the tournament and it was pit so maybe we would have messed that up anyway 10 seed, uh, 10 seed, yeah, 10 seed wins at least a game pretty much every year. And and I feel like often, like not every year, but often the 10 seed in the, in the tournament in the ACC is probably on the fringe of the tournament. Yeah, things to consider. Yes, so we want to finish 10th if we can. I know that we're going to play and try to win all these games because at the same time you don't want to like give away games, but if we could somehow have it work where we finish 10th but also win four games, that'd be great. I don't know if that's possible, but it could be, because I think we could have like a jumble at 9-9. Nine nine. Fair. Well, guess we'll see. I, uh... This also illustrates that the ACC should probably find a better way to do this. Yeah, like leaving out the bottom few teams. That would make sense. It's like, any team that... Why, why, are we, why are we bringing any team... That was absolute garbage. That, that, why are we bringing Pitt? Do we just leave Pitt home? That's fine. <laughs> leave Pitt home. I know you want to play Pitt, but like, in, aside from that point... Unless you can guarantee Syracuse that it can play Pitt. Pitt doesn't provide anything. Pitt, Pitt like, Kevin Stallings doesn't want to be there. I said, this, I said this There's during... No like, I said this when we were in the Big East, too. I think 12's the max. Like, I get, like, the, the whole automatic bid thing. Um, I get that, like, technically any team can still make the tournament. Like, I understand how college basketball works. I don't think we really need teams that are not at least, like, on the bubble to be in these postseason tournaments. Well, and, like, if you're the 15th place team in the ACC, are you actually traveling to go see that trash? No, and if you're a Wake Forest fan, you're not, because you're Wake, or, or Pitt fan. Like, Pitt fans aren't traveling to Pitt to see games right now. Right. Yeah, they're not, they're not driving to Brooklyn. They're certainly not driving to Brooklyn. No. Anyway, uh, we are in, like, we are in, like, double overtime here. So... <laughs> So, so you're about to take a turnaround jumper uh, off of a crazy inbound pass to win the game. 100%. Um, all right. Uh, that was Dan. I'm John. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Troy Noons and Absolute Podcast. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Blog Talk, and uh, go Orange. Go Orange. Finish up. 
At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Huge savings on new and previously leased furnishings. That's right, huge savings. At Court Furniture Clearance Center, choose from our wide variety of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. You'll find sofas from $199.99 and more. Everything in our 9,000-square-foot showroom is Court-certified, guaranteed, and in stock, ready for delivery or to take home today. Visit our Chantilly Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off.